0: Hi, my name is Alex Page, and welcome to the Government Department Hot Seat. Today with us to discuss ongoing developments in the Middle East is Dr. John Childcraft, reader in The Politics and History of Empire-slash-Imperialism. Hi, John. Thank you for being with
1: us. Thank you for having me.
0: What is the significance of the recent unrest in Cairo and its uh, overall significance to the continuing revolution in Egypt?
1: Well, it has a, uh, a grave significance... It's not so much the unrest, it's a matter of the army is trying to consolidate its autocratic hold on power, thereby rolling back the hopes for freedom, bread and dignity raised by the Arab Spring. And it's trying to consolidate its hold on power by playing the sectarian card, playing on sectarian fears in Egypt, which will enable it to say, you're better off under a dictatorship that can prevent sectarian chaos from breaking out. And they've done that by, first of all, they fail to protect. They're failing to protect Copts and Coptic churches. Copts are the largest minority in Egypt. There's more, you know, 10 to 15% of the population, more than 10 million Christians who are, who are Copts in, in Egypt in a country of about 80 million. Their their places of worship are not being protected against attacks by militant Islamists, and they... Uh, And so what we saw last Sunday, the 9th of October, was a protest by, mostly by Christians in Cairo, protesting the failure uh, of the army to protect uh, a church that had been attacked by militant Islamists in Egypt. And uh, last Sunday, on the 9th, they set off in quite a sizable demonstration from Shubra, a popular quarter of, of Cairo, to head down to Tahrir Square. They were joined by a number of Muslims too, because, in fact, the hope of the Arab Spring was anti-sectarian. It was the idea that Muslims and Christians can, can live together in a plural and democratic society. And so they're defending the, the, the Muslims who joined the demonstration are defending the rule of law, and they're defending that vision. And what the army did, or rather the, the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces, which heads the army, did something which recalls the, the, the violence and the cynicism of the Mubarak regime because what they did is not only did they uh, show themselves capable of massacring peaceful demonstrators, up to 25, as we understand, and this is not something that the army did during the uprising in January, February, but now for the first time, and we have pictures, eyewitness accounts, videos that are streaming across the world showing an armoured personnel carrier, at least one, running over peaceful demonstrators who are trying to escape ...and killing them. And so they've done that. Not only have they done that, they've shown themselves cynical enough to use the state TV to incite the population to effectively sectarian hatred. They, on state TV, the message went out that Muslims had to come down onto the streets to protect the army who were being attacked by Muslims, by, by Christians... And, it, and, and and of course they've muttered darkly, recalling again the, the cynical techniques of of the Arab dictatorships gone, uh, of, of years gone by. They said it's all part of a foreign plot to destabilize Egypt, to damage its national security. And so they're posing as the autocratic power that can. the only way to bring order and stability and uh, economic growth to Egypt is that you have to accept that we are going to put delays on the democratic process, that we're going to continue to enforce an emergency law that's a matter of universal revulsion in Egypt, that they're going to to put back perhaps the the, the date of the election for the presidency, which uh, keeps uh, the horizon for which keeps getting further away. Uh, Now it's late 2012, perhaps early 2013. So it's been significant. They're able to play on fears of militant Islam, and exaggerate them. This is the, the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces. They're able to use existing elements of sectarian prejudice, which exist in Egypt, like in any society, and they're able, therefore, to pose as the autocratic power that can hold everybody in check. And they have some examples. They can say, look what happened in Iraq when we had sectarian warfare because, uh, because of the, the power vacuum. Uh, in fact, the reality is there's no, it, it's not uh, historically fair to say that um, when you have a, a liberal and democratic politics, you get sectarian chaos. Sure, you can have sectarian chaos in a power vacuum, but in a, a place where you have a developed liberal and democratic politics with the rule of law, organized political participation, civil society and so on, you don't. there's no reason to think that that will bring about sectarian violence and chaos if you look at the history of the region. So what the army is saying is, unfounded in historical reality, but it's a, ve- it's a clever way of trying to extinguish uh, uh, the, the vibrant political field that has come into being in Egypt since February. And it's a way of clamping down on civil liberties, of defining anybody who protests as uh, acting against the security interests of the nation. And it will enable them to uh, minimise debate and discussion also on social justice issues and redistribution issues because this is vitally important for the great majority of Egyptians who are worrying about inflation and how to buy a flat which will enable them to get married and the cost of living and uh, the, um, the the falling wages in private and public sector alike so but the army wants to say, they try and make this a psychological question. You just have to pull up your socks and work very hard and stop making demands, and we will have economic growth. Whereas there are many people in the political field who want to say, no, we need real, we need to look at the neoliberal economic dispensation which has brought us to this place in the context of a much larger financial crisis on a global scale. And uh, they're having political debates about it, which which could be meaningful and interesting, but the army wants to shut them down. And again, by, by playing on sectarian fear, by continuing with emergency, uh, the emergency law, by using these military tribunals, whereby they've tried thousands of people who've been engaged in peaceful protests, they've been put before military tribunals and sentenced to uh, prison terms since February the 11th. They've done that to thousands of individuals. Uh, they're able to, to clamp down on the sorts of vibrant political debate that have in fact been promised by the Arab Spring and that have raised hopes uh, high, you know, for good reason. So it's a dangerous moment for the reason, uh, for the, for the, because they're able to play on fears that exist and historical examples that seem to confirm what they're saying. Uh, but the reality, but we mustn't take our eyes off the fact that they're trying to crush a meaningful political field in Egypt.
0: But do you have much optimism for the ideals of that of the revolution to continue, or...?
1: Well, uh, I'm a mixture of optimism and pessimism. I mean, we have to look at the very... It's very real, the sectarian fear, the sectarian question in Egypt. It's real. We can't... uh, And the vested interests and the power of the army are real. The power of the West to uh, incite um, all sorts of irrational fears vis-a-vis militant Islam, the power of the West to support client dictatorships, The, the, the power of the West to impose neoliberal economics... Uh, and the cynical geopolitics that it's been practicing for a long time are all part of the equation, and we can't uh, be unrealistic and naive about those forces. But at the same time, there there was some promise in the Arab Spring. One was that in terms of Western geopolitics, there was some vacillation. These popular uprisings really caught the status quo by surprise because the status quo is pursuing internationally, supports these dictatorships. I mean, as we know, France was sending tear gas to Ben Ali in Tunisia until the 12th of January. They support them, and and of course, such as Saudi Arabia as well, it's very important. Uh, And they're taken by surprise by these popular uprisings. And which are also uprisings for social justice in the face of a neoliberal economics that the, the West is supporting. So, And there was some vacillation in the West, partly because uh, they, these movements were quite inspiring to quite significant sectors. Uh, I mean, there's a meaningful sector associated with human rights. There are people that believe that you know democracy and, and civil liberties and participation is a good thing. So there was some vacillation. I mean, whereas, for example as I understand it, reported in The Guardian, uh, MI6 over Libya recommended that we, do bi- we continue to do business with the devil we know, mm. uh, referring to meaning that they would continue to support Colonel Gaddafi. But other elements in the security and political establishment decided against it, especially David Cameron, according to the research done by The Guardian, it would seem. So there was vacillation in the West over its quite long-standing policy. So that was a moment for hope, especially if you, one, put that against the background of what Obama had promised to the region two years before, and the upcoming Palestine statehood bid, uh, and the background where the financial crisis, we we hoped, might have led um, commentators to at least question the dominant neoliberal paradigm for financial deregulation, and finally, the idea that the war on terror, had not produced very many productive kinds of results and that the idea was to draw back from Afghanistan and to draw back from Iraq. And so there was a, a positive geopolitical conjuncture, political, economic, cultural. Uh, but uh, but um, And so there are were, there were reasons to, to, to be hopeful. But as we know, I, I mean, I know you're going to ask me about the Palestine question. But we know what's happened, which is that the United States and and Europe have been working very hard to oppose the uh, Palestinian bid for statehood at the UN, uh, which is, uh, you know, it's not strictly uh, uh, predictable, because as you say, there was some vacillation and there was some hope that was associated with Obama, but that's now been completely uh, thrown into the trash can.
0: Yeah. So recently, uh, Mahmoud Abbas tr- tried to link the Arab Spring with Palestinians' bid in the UN. Mm. Do you see a, a distinct link between these processes?
1: Well, there is a link in so far as um, I mean, the Palestine bid for statehood has been on the table for a long time, and they've been uh, proposing that it will come forward to the UN for a long time. Um, and it, but it's important that. It's said in the the context of the Arab Spring because it is an assertion of the rights of a people to national self-determination, an assertion of a kind of uh, collective uh, pride or self-esteem that is not sectarian, and it's not uh, about militant Islam, and it's not... uh, in any way, a threat to the established order of nation-states. It proposes a national right to self-determination. That's what Mahmoud Abbas was able to say at the UN. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is, in in a context where you have a certain, some room for manoeuvre on the geopolitical stage and a larger assertion of rights associated with the Arab Spring, uh, and where you have you know, global audiences from London to Damascus and, and beyond, seeing these events unfold, uh, they, there are all sorts of uh, connections between how people perceive. I mean, now that Obama has, has shown himself to be engaged in, this, in what's being read as a cynical electoral ploy, because in order to win votes at the next election, he's decided to completely cave in to the Zionist lobby in the United Mm -hmm. States and to back the most craven and unpalatable right-wing administration virtually in the history of Israel, which is the right-wing government under Benjamin Netanyahu. And so he's chosen to back that administration uh, and therefore to allow the ongoing occupation, ethnic cleansing, the siege of Gaza. And so the, um, the failure to back the statehood bid is of course, I mean, what it does is it reinforces the interpretation on the ground that in fact, any kind of Western intervention is just a form of imperialism. It reinforces the story about foreign plots being hatched against our people. And ultimately, that does play into the hand of dictators who can then present the uh, influence of the UN and the United States and everybody else as something that's wholly uh, negative and wholly associated with uh, 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 imperial designs on those countries. Whereas I think the, a more, actually a more subtle reading of what happened in 2011 was that there was some vacillation uh, in the geopolitics. It wasn't exactly clear to Western leaders how they should respond to these uprisings.
0: Well, now, turning turning to Syria, with uh, reports of, of rising violence, uh, what do you see as the future of the Assad regime?
1: Well, he can cling to power like a repressive dictator. That's possible. Uh, and, what he, and, he, and he will play on, again, the sectarian fears in Syria, because Syria is a very... A multicultural society it has many religions it has many sects and uh, Syria has long looked over its shoulder at Lebanon and said we don't want a civil war mm-hmm. so we need a strong uh, government to prevent that happening and then the case of Iraq since 2003 especially the the severe violence inflicted on on Christians as well as on Shia in in uh, and sunni I mean there was a, a sectarian Uh, significant levels of sectarian violence in Iraq. And so in order to stay in power, Bashar al-Assad will play on these fears. He'll say, if I'm forced from power, you will have sectarian chaos, and you will have these militant Islamists who exist in the country, but not in very large numbers. They will be able to uh, sow violence and perhaps even come to power and this will and you say you better stick with me because I'm the alternative that uh, that has some kind of stability and he he pumps up the uh the anti-israel rhetoric by threatening to throw missiles at tel aviv and this plays well to a domestic audience and uh and even though uh, and so there are ways that Assad can try and marshal some kind of constituency as being, you know, the least bad possibility in mm. Syria. But um, but in reality, what happened in Syria wasn't the the protests that broke out in Syria. Their origins do not lie in sectarian conflict mm. or regional conflict, because Syria's a uh, you know, Syria has Aleppo, it has Hama, it has Homs, it has Damascus. They're different cities with different histories, and some and they've had conflicts between them in the past. It didn't arise from sectarian conflict, and it certainly didn't arise from uh, militant Islamism, Mm -hmm. which uh, for, uh, I mean, as Fawaz Gerges has it in his recent book, uh, the professor at LSE, um, the remarkable silence and inability of of Al-Qaeda and other kind of associated uh, Salafi uh, Islamist organizations to say anything about the Arab Spring, because... Mm -hmm. the language of bread, dignity and freedom uh, and social justice that were being articulated by um, very large numbers, millions of youthful and not so youthful men and women across the region from all walks of life in no way fitted into some narrow um, uh, Islamist uh, program for the, the transformation of the state. So The origins of that, of the Arab Spring, I mean, it begins in Syria, where people in the provinces are enraged by, they can't make a living because of inflation, and they're being constantly put upon by a violent and corrupt police force. And so you have a circle, an expanding circle of demonstrations, police violence, larger demonstrations, and it's... Uh, they're ang- they're, of course, they're angry at what's happened to them, uh, the, 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 the youth in, in Tunisia during these demonstrations, and, and they're fighting back. They're saying enough is enough. And then uh, the unthinkable happens, which is that they managed, somehow they managed to oust uh, Ben Ali from power on the, on the 14th of January. And this is the inspiration that crossed borders uh, after January the 14th was that this somehow can be done by, by people going out on the streets, taking over public space, demonstrating in a way that's exactly contrary to what those dictatorial regimes want to do with that public space and to defy bullets, torture, etc. That's what inspired what happened in Syria, not sectarianism, the opposite of sectarianism, and not militant Islamist politics. And so that's the source of inspiration for this uh, this uprising, and again, it's been it's focused on the sins of the regime. It's not focused on uh, imperialism or Zionism, uh, even though, you know, the, the cynical geopolitics of the West would, would, is something that will have to be confronted at one point or another. So, um, uh, for this reason, although there are sectarian forces and Islamist forces, and Uh, Western forces that will try and take advantage of what's happening in the Arab world, it doesn't mean that that's what was driving it from the beginning. And so uh, the situation in Syria is, I mean, it's caught in a a, a bloody struggle because every day there are demonstrations and protests and every day those protesters are being killed by either the plain clothes or the uniformed officers in, in the Syrian army. And slowly, there are more and more defections from the Syrian army and security forces, and that's developing some kind of. Uh, and, and and now there's been, there's there's some kind of armed resistance going on too. So uh, we don't know the future of the Assad regime, but if the if the West uh, and the international community can, I mean this new this nugatory veto by China and Russia of the UN resolution. I mean, of course, the reason they did it was partly because they're, they're punishing uh, Britain, France, and partly the US for what they see as overstepping their mandate in Libya. And so they, they vetoed that UN resolution, which was really quite a watered-down uh, resolution, which merely condemned what was going on in, 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 with the violence of the regime in Syria, which is quite right. And so that was in, entirely unproductive. But I mean, so um, uh, we don't know what's gonna happen. With Bashar al Assad, but my sense is that there won't be, that regime won't achieve anything in the future. It can cling to power through corruption, vested interests, and repression, but its days of any kind of positive social or political especially achievement is in the past now for that regime.
0: Do you see perhaps it ending up into civil war?
1: Well, uh, this is a possibility. Because there are forces that uh, that can hijack um, the, the what 's going on in, the, in that could drive it in that direction uh, but it, but it, it partly depends on on whether or not this there can be some organized uh, political articulation of those the aspirations of the Arab Spring and most people in Syria. Uh, whether or not that will be um, hijacked by one or the other of the agendas that are in the region. I mean, it's in the balance. I don't think there's a, it's determined in advance which way things will go.
0: Does the international community have a lot of sort of influence over the future in Syria?
1: Well, if the international community would listen to the Arab Spring, and in some respects uh, there has been some movement, as I suggested, What they should do is stop supporting client dictatorships, stop supporting them with arms, money, and diplomatic cover. They should stop pushing the kind of neoliberal economic growth models on those countries, which have led to, well, I think it's safe to say from all the studies that have been done, it has not done anything to improve conditions for economic and social conditions for the great majority of the population across the Arab world. And they should, um, uh, I, I mean, it's, it's really, a, those are r- r- some of the two main th- And the third thing is they should stop whipping up uh, uh, um, irrational fear and incitement vis-a-vis the powers and capabilities of militant Islamist groups. Because if you treat them as the major political and geopolitical threat that the globe faces, then you automatically empower them, if that's how you treat them. I mean, this is part of the story of the, the relative success of Al Qaeda in the in the 2000s, as the uh, because it was treated as enemy number one, which is a way of uh, it's a form of very powerful form of recognition, which uh, played into their hands. So uh, those are the things that the West can do. Uh, they're really a list of things that it shouldn't do. You know, not dictatorship impoverishing economic policies and uh, irrational fears over sectarianism and and militant Islamism. And um, so, I mean, if we could even think of a geopolitics that was more sensitive to those issues, then we might make some progress while leaving the business of the growth of a political field and a more democratic or liberal process in those countries to the sorts of forces that have been pushing from below to take that process forward, and it appeared on the political stage very dramatically early this year.
0: Well, thank you very much, Dr. Chowcraft. Uh, you are off the hot seat.
1: Okay, thank you.
0: And thank you for being with us, and stay tuned for the next edition of The Hot Seat.